Hi, this is Robert Sean Leonard. I'm a famous celebrity. When I come to Symphony Space to host selected shorts, it's not really about the stories. Sure, sure, great works of short fiction told by stars of stage and screen, blah, blah, blah. But did you know when I host shorts, they put Zabar's babka in the green room? Sometimes it's not just the chocolate babka, but the cinnamon kind, too. Fun fact, when other actors are reading on stage and I'm left alone to quote-unquote review my notes, I steal the babka, unless Jane Curtin's eaten it all. If she hasn't, I just shove the babka into my bag and take it home so I don't have to share. Of course, when I got caught, the folks at Symphony Space told me cheating my fellow actors out of babka wasn't necessary. Zabar's will deliver to all 50 states, Puerto Rico, and the Virgin Islands. And it's not just babka. Zabar's sells bagels, smoked salmon, caviar, and about 8,000 pounds of freshly roasted coffee a week. And listeners can find out about exclusive offers and free shipping and get a free story download at zabars.com shorts. So now that I know I don't need to physically be at Selected Shorts to get Bobka, you might not be hearing from me for a while. As he sat on a bench in the park, looking at the pictures in the clouds across the lake, it came to him that he had the power to do this thing that upon him at that moment had been bestowed the gift of putting a mark on all the bad people on Earth so they should be known. This week on Selected Shorts, Great Power. He'd never stayed in a boarding house, and to be perfectly honest, he was a tiny bit frightened of them. The name itself conjured up images of watery cabbage, rapacious landladies, and a powerful smell of kippers in the living room. He turned to go. And now a queer thing happened to him. He was in the act of stepping back and turning away from the window when all at once his eye was caught and held in the most peculiar manner by the small notice that was there. Bed and breakfast, it said. Bed and breakfast, bed and breakfast, bed and breakfast. Each word was like a large black eye staring at him through the glass, holding him, compelling him. I'm Robert Sean Leonard, and you're listening to Selected Shorts from PRI, the program that brings you great short fiction read live on stage at Symphony Space in New York City. Two of the three stories on this show were performed at an evening celebrating the classic television show The Twilight Zone, created by Rod Serling. About to tell you something I can't explain myself. Serling and his writers started in pulp fiction, but they were also humanists. They used elements of fantasy, horror, and science fiction to tackle important social issues. One of the stories adapted for the series was Price Day's Four O'Clock. A self appointed vigilante with magical powers knows just how to make the world a better place. Zachary Quinto reads Four O'Clock. The hands of the clock on the table in front of Mr. Krangle stood at 3.47 on a summer afternoon. You're wrong about that, you know, he said, not taking his eyes from the face of the clock. You're quite wrong, pet. As I have explained to you often enough before, the moral angle presents no difficulties at all. The parrot in the cage hanging above him cocked her head and looked down with a hard, 
cold, reptilian eye, an ancient eye, an eye older by age upon age than the human race. She said, not. Mr. Crangle, his eyes still on the clock, took a peanut from a cracker bowl at his elbow and held it above his head to the bars of the cage. Pet clutched it in a leathery claw. The spring steel muscles opened the horny beak. She clinched the peanut and crushed it, the sound mingling in the furnished room with the big city sounds coming through the open window, cars honking, feet on the sidewalk, children calling to each other, a plane overhead like a contented, industrious bee. It's quite true, Mr. Crangle said at 349, that only someone above all personal emotions only someone who can look at the whole thing as if from the outside can be trusted morally to make such a decision. As the big hand reached 350, he felt a sense of power surge deeply through him. Think, pet. In 10 minutes, in 10 little minutes, when I say the word, all the evil people all over the world will become half their present size so they can be known. All the uncaught murderers and the tyrants and the proud and sinful, all the bullies and the wrongdoers and the blackmailers and nicotine fiends and transgressors, his eyes blazed with omnipotence, all of them, every one. Pet said, not. Mr. Crangle gave her one. I know you don't agree fully with the half-size solution, he said, but I do believe it to be the best one, all things considered. He had studied over the alternatives day and night since that morning, three weeks ago, when, as he sat on a bench in the park, looking at the pictures in the clouds across the lake, it came to him that he had the power to do this thing, that upon him at that moment had been bestowed the gift of putting a mark on all the bad people on earth so they should be known. The realization had surprised him not at all. Once before such a thing had happened, he had once held the power to stop wars. That was when the radio was telling about the big air raids on the cities. In that case, the particular thing he could do was to take the stiffness out of airplane propellers so that some morning when the crews bundled like children against the cold went out to get in their planes, they would find the props hanging limp like empty banana skins. That time he had delayed too long, waiting for just the right time and just the right plan, and they had outwitted him unfairly. They had invented the jet, to which his power did not apply. Then, too, there had been the thing about wheels, the thing about wheels came to him in a coffee place as he was looking at a newspaper photograph of a bad traffic accident, three killed. The power, that was, to change all the wheels in the world from round to square, or even to triangular, if he wished, so they would stub in the asphalt and stop. But he wasn't allowed to keep that power. Before he could work out a plan and a time, he had felt it taken from him. The power over bad people had stayed it had even grown stronger, if power like that could grow stronger. And this time he had hurried, though of course there were certain problems to be thought through. First, who was to decide what people were evil? 
Well, that wasn't too hard, really, in spite of Pet's doubts. An evil person was a person who would seem evil to a man who held within himself the knowledge of good and evil, if that man could know all the person's innermost secrets. An evil person was a person who would seem evil to an all-knowing Mr. Krangle. Then, how to do it? The method. Mark them on the forehead or turn them all one color, say, purple. But then they would simply be able to recognize each other the more readily and to band together in their wickedness. When at last he hit upon the idea of a change in size, what came to him first was the thought of doubling the height and bulk of all the bad people. That would make them inefficient. They couldn't handle delicate scientific instruments or typewriters or adding machines or telephone dials. In time, they would expire from bigness, like the dinosaurs in the article in the Sunday paper. But they might first run wild with their great weight and strength and hurt other people. Mr. Krangle wouldn't have liked that. He hated violence. Half-sized people, it was true, might be able to manipulate some of the machines. They could also be dangerous, but it would take them a long time to develop tools and weapons to their scale, and how ridiculous they would be, meanwhile, with their clothes twice too big and their hats falling down over their ears. At 3.54, Mr. Krangle smiled at the thought of how ridiculous they would be. Not, Pet said. He reached up and gave her one, his eyes still on the clock. I think, he said, that the most interesting place to be would be at a murder trial where nobody knew whether the accused was guilty or not. And then at four o'clock, if he was guilty, Mr. Krangle's breath was coming faster. The clock's hands stood at 3.56. Or watching the drunkards in a saloon, he said. Not, Pet said, and he gave her one. Oh, he said, there are so many places, so many places to be but I'd rather be here with you when it happens, pet. Right here, alone with you. He sat tense in his chair. He could actually see the big hand of the clock move and the tiniest little jerkings, leaving a hairline of white between itself and the black 357 dot and moving to the 358 dot, narrowing the space until it touched that dot and then stood directly on it and then moved past toward the 359 dot. At first, Mr. Krangle said, the newspapers won't believe it. Even though some of it will happen right in the newspaper offices, they won't believe it. At first, they won't. And then, when they begin to understand that it has happened to a lot of people everybody knows are evil, then they'll see the design. The clock said, 3.59. A great story, Mr. Krangle said. A great newspaper story, and nobody will know who did it, pet. Nobody but you and me. The point of the big hand crept halfway past the 359 dot. Mr. Krangle's heart beat fast. His eyes were wide, his lips parted. He whispered, Nobody will know. The tip of the big hand touched the dot at the top of the clock face. The alarm went off. Mr. Krangle felt a great surge of strength like water bursting a dam and a great shock as a bolt of lightning. He closed his eyes. Now, he said softly, and slumped, exhausted. By going to the window and looking down at the crowd in the street, he could have seen whether it had worked or not. He did not go to the window. He did not need to. He knew. The alarm bell ran down, 
Pet cocked her head and looked at him with an eye like a polished stone. Nut, she said. His hand, as he stretched it up, failed by a full foot and a half to reach her cage. Zachary Quinto performed Four O'Clock by Price Day. I'm Robert Sean Leonard. Next from our selection of Twilight Zone stories is Charles Beaumont's Perchance to Dream. A man consults his doctor about a sleep disorder, and the boundaries between waking and dreaming blur. The reader is Zach Grinier. Please sit down the psychiatrist said, indicating a somewhat worn leather couch. Automatically, Hall sat down. Instinctively, he leaned back. Dizziness flooded through him. His eyelids fell like sash weights. The blackness came. He jumped up quickly and slapped his right cheek, and then he slapped his left cheek hard. I'm sorry, doctor, he said. The psychiatrist, who was tall and young and not in the least to be an ease... Nodded. You prefer to stand, he asked gently. Prefer? Hall threw his head back and laughed. That's good, he said. Prefer? I'm afraid I don't quite understand. Neither do I, doctor. He pinched the flesh of his left hand until it hurt. No, no, that isn't true. I do understand. That's the whole trouble. I do. You want to tell me about it? Yes, No, it's silly. He thought you can't help me. No one can. I'm alone. Forget it, he said and started for the door. The psychiatrist said, wait a minute. His voice was friendly, concerned, but not patronizing. Running away won't do you much good, will it? Hall hesitated. Forgive the cliche. Actually, running away often is the best answer, but I don't know yet that yours is that sort of problem. Did Dr. Jansen tell you about me? No, Jim said he was sending you over, but he thought that you'd do a better job on the details. I only know that your name is Philip Hall, you're 31, and you haven't been able to sleep for a long time. Yes, a long time. To be exact, 72 hours, Hall thought, glancing at the clock, 72 horrible hours. The psychiatrist tapped out a cigarette. Aren't you, he began, tired? God, yes, I'm the tiredest man on earth. I could sleep forever, but that's just it. You see, I would. I'd never wake up. Please, the psychiatrist said. Hall bit his lip. There wasn't, he supposed, much point to it, but after all, what else was there for him to do? Where would he go? You mind if I pace? Stand on your head, if you like. Okay. I'll take one of your cigarettes. He drew the smoke into his lung and walked over to the window. Fourteen floors below, the toy people and the toy cars moved. He watched them and thought, This guy's all right. Sharp, intelligent, nothing like what I expected. Who can say? Maybe it'll do some good. I'm not sure where to begin. It doesn't matter. The beginning might be easier for you. Hall shook his head violently. The beginning, he thought, was there such a thing? Just take it easy. After a lengthy pause, Hall said, 
I first found out about the power of the human mind when I was 10. Close to that time, anyway, we had a tapestry in the bedroom. It was a great big thing, size of a rug with fringe on the edges. It showed a group of soldiers, Napoleonic soldiers, on horses. They were at the brink of some kind of cliff, and the first horse was reared up. My mother told me something. She told me that if I stared at the tapestry long enough, the horses would start to move. They'd go right over the cliff, she said. I tried it, but nothing happened. She said, well, you've got to take time. You've got to think about it. So every night before I went to bed, I'd sit up and stare at that damn tapestry. And finally, it happened. Over they went, all the horses, all the men, over the edge of the cliff. Hall stubbed out the cigarette and began to pace. Scared the hell out of me, he said. When I looked again, they were all back. It got to be a game with me. Later on, I, I tried it with pictures and magazines, and pretty soon I was able to move locomotives and send balloons flying and make dogs open their mouths. Everything, anything I wanted. He paused, ran a hand through his hair. Not too unusual, you're thinking, he said. Every kid does it, like standing in a closet and shining a flashlight through your finger or sewing up the heel of your palm or common stuff. The psychiatrist shrugged. There was a difference, Hall said. One day, it got out of control. I, I was looking at a coloring book, one of those that showed a picture of a knight and a dragon fighting. For fun, I decided to make the knight drop his lance. He did the dragon started after him, breathing fire. In another second, the dragon's mouth was open and he was ready to eat the knight. I blinked and shook my head like always, only nothing happened. I mean, the picture didn't go back, not even when I closed the book and opened again. But I didn't think too much about it even then. He walked to the desk and took another cigarette. It slipped from his hands. You've been on dexedrine, the psychiatrist said, watching as Hall tried to pick up the cigarette. Yes. How many grains a day? Thirty. Thirty-five. I don't know. Potent knocks out your coordination. I suppose Jim warned you. Yes, he warned me. Well, let's get along. What happened then? Nothing. Hall allowed the psychiatrist to light his cigarette. For a while, I forgot about the game, almost completely. Then when I turned 13, I got sick, rheumatic heart. The psychiatrist leaned forward and frowned. And Jim let you have 35... Don't interrupt! He decided not to mention that he had gotten the drug from his aunt, that Dr. Jackson knew nothing about it. I, I, I had to stay in bed a lot. No activity might kill me. So I read books, listened to the radio. One night I heard a ghost story, Hermit's Cave, it was called, all about a man who gets drowned and comes back to haunt his wife. My parents were gone at a movie. I was alone. And I kept thinking about that story, imagining the ghost. Maybe I thought to myself, he's in that closet. I, I knew he wasn't. I knew there wasn't any such thing as a ghost, really, but... There was a little part of my mind that kept saying, look at the closet, watch the door. He's in there, Philip, and he's going to come out. I picked up a book and tried to read, but I couldn't help glancing at the closet door. It was open a crack, everything dark behind it, everything dark and quiet. And the door moved. That's right. You understand that there's nothing terribly unusual in anything you've said so far. I know, Hall said. It was my imagination. It was. And I realized it even then, but 
I got just as scared, just as scared as if a ghost actually had opened the door. And that's the whole point, the mind, doctor. It's everything. If you think you have a pain in your arm and there's no physical reason for it, you don't hurt any less. My mother died because she thought she had a fatal disease. The autopsy showed malnutrition, nothing else. But she died just the same. Um, I won't dispute the point. All right, I just don't want you to tell me it's all in my mind. I know it is. Go on. They told me I'd never get really well. I'd have to take it easy for the rest of my life because of the heart. No strenuous exercise, no stairs, no long walks, no shocks. Shocks produce excessive adrenaline, they said. Bad. So that's the way it was. When I got out of school, I grabbed a soft desk job. Unexciting. Numbers. Adding numbers. That's all. Things went okay for a few years. Then it started again. I read about where some woman got into her car at night and happened to check for something in the back seat and found a man hidden there, waiting. It stuck with me. I started dreaming about it. So every night when I got into my car, I automatically patted the rear seat and floorboards. It satisfied me for a while until I started thinking, what if I forgot to check or what if there's something back there that isn't human? I had to drive across Laurel Canyon to get home, and you know how twisty that stretch is, 35-foot drop straight down. I'd get this feeling halfway across. There's someone, something in the back of the car, hidden in the darkness, fat and shiny. I'll look into the rearview mirror, and I'll see his hands ready to circle my throat. Again, doctor, understand me. I knew it was my imagination. I had no doubt at all that the back seat was empty. Hell, I kept the car locked, and I double-checked, but I told myself, you keep thinking this way, Hall, and you'll see those hands. It'll be a reflection or somebody's headlights or nothing at all, but you'll see them. Finally, one night I did see them. The car lurched a couple of times and went down the embankment. The psychiatrist said, wait a minute. Rose and switched the tape on a small machine. I knew how powerful the mind was then, Hall continued. I knew that ghosts and demons did exist. They did, if only you thought about them long and hard enough. After all, one of them almost killed me. He pressed the lighted end of a cigarette against his flesh. The fog lifted instantly. Dr. Jackson told me afterwards that one more serious shock like that would finish me. And that's when I started having the dream. There was a silence in the room, compounded of distant automobile horns, the ticking of the ship wheels clock, the insectable tapping of the receptionist typewriter, Hall's own tortured breathing. They say dreams only last a couple of seconds, he said. I I don't know whether it's true or not. It doesn't matter. They seem to last longer. Sometimes I've dreamed a whole lifetimes. Sometimes generations have passed. Once in a while, time stops completely. It's a frozen moment lasting forever. When I was a kid, I saw Flash Gordon serials. You remember? I loved them. And when the last episode was over... I went home and started dreaming more. Each night, another episode. They were vivid, too, and I remember them. When I woke up, I even wrote them down to make sure I wouldn't forget. (laughs) Crazy? No, said the psychiatrist. I did, anyway. The same thing happened with the Oz books and the Burroughs books. I kept them going. But after the age of 15 or so, I didn't dream much, only once in a while. Then a week ago, 
Hall stopped talking. He asked the location of the bathroom and went and splashed cold water on his face. Then he returned and stood by the window. A week ago, the psychiatrist said, flipping the tape machine back on. I went to bed about 11.30. I wasn't too tired, but I needed the rest on account of my heart. Right away, the dream started. I was walking along Venice Pier. It was close to midnight. The place was crowded, people everywhere. You know, the kind they used to get there, sailors, dumping-looking dames, kids in leather jackets. The pitchmen were going through their routines. You could hear the roller coasters thundering along the tracks, the people inside the roller coasters screaming. You could hear the bells and the guns cracking and the crazy songs they play on the calliopes. And far, far away, the ocean moving. Everything was bright and gaudy and cheap. And I walked for a while, stepping on gum and candy apples, wondering why I was there. Hall's eyes closed. He opened them quickly and rubbed them. Halfway to the end, passing the Penny Arcade, I saw a girl. She was about 22 or three. Arcade, white dress, very thin and tight, and a funny white hat. Her legs were bare, but nicely muscled and tan. She was alone. I stopped and watched her, and I remember thinking, she must have a boyfriend. He must be here somewhere. But she didn't seem to be waiting for anyone or looking. Unconsciously, I began to follow her at a distance. She watched past a couple of concessions. Then she stopped at one called the Whip and strolled in and went for a ride. The air was hot and caught her dress as she went around and it sent it whirling. It didn't bother her at all. She just held onto the bar and closed her eyes and, I don't know, a kind of ecstasy seemed to come over her. She began to laugh a high-pitched musical sound. I stood by the fence and watched her, wondering why such a beautiful girl should be laughing in a cheap carnival ride in the middle of the night all by herself. Then my hands froze on the fence because suddenly I saw she was looking at me. Every time the car would whip around, she'd be looking, and there was something in her eyes, something that said, don't go away, don't leave, don't move. The ride stopped and she got out and walked over to me. As naturally as if we'd known each other for years, she put her arm in mine and said, We've been expecting you, Mr. Hall. Her voice was deep and soft. Her face was close up and was even more beautiful than it had seemed. Full, rich lips, a little wet, dark, flashing eyes, a warm gleam to her flesh. I didn't answer She laughed again and tugged at my sleeve. Come on, darling, she said. We haven't much time. And we walked, almost running, to the Silver Flash, a roller coaster, the highest on the pier. I knew I shouldn't go on it because of my heart condition, but she wouldn't listen. She said I had to for her. So we bought our tickets and got into the first seat of the car. Hall held his breath for a moment and let it out slowly. As he relived the episode, he found that it was easier to stay awake, much easier. That, he said, was the end of the first dream. I woke up sweating and trembling and thought about it most of the day, wondering where it had all come from. I'd only been to Venice once in my life with my mother years ago, but that night, just as it happened with the cereals, the dream picked up exactly where it had left off. We were settling into the seat, Rough leather cracked and peeling, I recall. The grab iron bar painted black, the paint rubbed away in the center. 
I tried to get out thinking, now's the time to do it. Do it now or you'll be too late. But the girl held me and whispered to me, we'd be together, she said, close together. If I'd do this one thing for her, she'd belong to me. Please, please. Then the car started, a little jerk. The kids beginning to yell and scream, the clack, clack of the chain pulling up and up slowly, too late now, too late for anything, up the steep wooden hill, a third of the way up to the top with her holding me, pressing herself against me, I woke again. Next night, we went up a little further. Next night, a little further, foot by foot, slowly up the hill. At the halfway point, the girl began kissing me laughing. Look down, she told me. Look down, Philip. And I did and saw little people and little cars and everything tiny and unreal. Finally, we were within a few feet of the crest. The night was so black and the wind was fast and cold now, and I was scared, so scared that I couldn't move. The girl laughed louder than ever, and a strange expression came into her eyes. I remembered then how no one else had noticed her, how the ticket taker had taken the two stubs and looked around questioningly. Who are you? I screamed, and she said, don't you know? And she stood up and pulled the grab bar out of my hands. I leaned forward to get it. Then we reached the top, and I saw her face, and I knew what she was going to do instantly. I knew I tried to get back into the seat, but I felt her hands on me, and I heard her voice laughing, high, laughing, shrieking with delight, and Hall smashed his fist against the wall, stopped, and waited for calm to return. When it did, he said, That's the whole thing, doctor. Now you know why I don't dare to go to sleep. When I do, and I have to, eventually I realize that the dream will go on and my heart won't take it. The psychiatrist pressed a button on his desk. Whoever she is, all went on, she'll push me and I'll fall hundreds of feet. I'll see the cement rush up in a blur to meet me and I'll feel the first horrible pain of contact. There was a click. The office door opened. A girl walked in. Miss Thomas, the psychiatrist began, I'd like you to... Philip Hall screamed. He stared at the girl in the white nurse's uniform and took a step backward. Oh, Christ, no. Mr. Hall, this is my receptionist, Miss Thomas. No, Hall cried. It's her. It is. I know it. Who she is. Now, God save me. I know who she is. The girl in the white uniform took a tentative step back into the room. Hall screamed again, threw his hands over his face, turned and tried to run. A voice called, stop him. Hall felt the sharp pain of the sill against his knee, realized in one hideous moment what was happening. Blindly, he reached out, grasping, but it was too late. As if drawn by a giant force, he tumbled through the open window, out of the cold, clear air. Hall! All the way down, all the long, endless way, down past the 13 floors to the gray, unyielding, hard concrete, his mind worked and his eyes never closed. I'm afraid he's dead, the psychiatrist said, removing his finger from Hall's wrist. The girl in the white uniform made a little gasping sound. But she said, only a minute ago I saw him and he was, I know. It's funny, when he came in, 
I told him to sit down. He did. And in less than two seconds, he was asleep. Then, you know, he gave that yell you heard. And heart attack? Yes. The psychiatrist rubbed his cheek thoughtfully. Well, he said, I guess there are worse ways to go. At least he died peacefully. Zach Grenier performed Charles Beaumont's Perchance to Dream. I'm Robert Sean Leonard. After a brief break, the perfect bed and breakfast. You're listening to Selected Shorts, recorded live in performance at Symphony Space in New York City and at other venues nationwide from PRI, Public Radio International. Zabars.com is a proud sponsor of Selected Shorts. Zabars.com delivers New York original toasting bagels, coffee, smoked salmon, babka, and more throughout the 50 states, Puerto Rico, and the Virgin Islands. Visit them on the web at zabars.com shorts. Welcome back to Selected Shorts. I'm Robert Sean Leonard. For more information about the stories you're hearing, the readers who are reading them, or about the Selected Shorts writing contest, you can go to selectedshorts.org. And please write and tell us what you think of today's program. Our final story in this show honoring the innovative sci-fi series The Twilight Zone was not part of the series, but author Raoul Dahl is also a master of the uncanny. In The Landlady, a footloose young man finds the perfect bed and breakfast and the perfect hostess. Sam Underwood read The Landlady at the Push Comedy Theater in Norfolk, Virginia. Billy Weaver had traveled down from London on the slow afternoon train with a change at Reading on the way, and by the time he got to Bath, it was about nine o'clock in the evening, and the moon was coming up out of a clear, starry sky over the houses opposite the station entrance. But the air was deadly cold, and the wind was like a flat blade of ice on his cheeks. Excuse me, he said, but is there a fairly cheap hotel not too far away from here? Try the Bell and Dragon, the porter answered, pointing down the road. They might take you in. It's about a quarter of a mile along on the other side. Billy thanked him and picked up his suitcase and set out to walk the quarter mile to the Bell and Dragon. He'd never been to Bath before. He didn't know anyone who lived there, but Mr. Greenslade at the head office in London had told him it was a splendid town. Find your own lodgings, he had said, and then go along and report to the branch manager as soon as you've got yourself settled. Billy was 17 years old. He was wearing a new navy blue overcoat, a new brown trilby hat, and a new brown suit, and he was feeling fine. He walked briskly down the street. He was trying to do everything briskly these days. Briskness, he had decided, was the one common characteristic of all successful businessmen. The big shots up at the head office were absolutely fantastically brisk all the time. They were amazing. Well, there were no shops on this wide street that he was walking along, only a line of tall houses on each side, all of them identical. They had porches and pillars and four or five steps going up to their front doors. And it was obvious that once upon a time, they had been very swanky residences. 
But now, even in the darkness, he could see that the paint was peeling from the woodwork on their doors and windows, and that the handsome white facades were cracked and blotchy from neglect. Suddenly, in a downstairs window that was brightly illuminated by a street lamp not six yards away, Billy caught sight of a printed notice propped up against the glass in one of the upper panes. It said, bed and breakfast. There was a vase of pussy willows, tall and beautiful, standing just underneath the notice. He stopped walking. He moved in a bit closer. Green curtains, some sort of velvety material, were hanging down on either side of the window, and the pussy willows looked wonderful beside them. He went right up and peered through the glass into the room, and the first thing he saw was a bright fire burning in the hearth. On the carpet in front of the fire, a pretty little dachshund was curled up asleep with his nose tucked into its belly. The room itself, so far as he could see in the half-darkness, was filled with pleasant furniture. There was a baby grand piano, a big sofa, and several plump armchairs. And in one corner, he spotted a large parrot in a cage. Animals were usually a, a good sign in a place like this, Billy told himself. And all in all, it looked to him as though it would be a pretty decent house to stay in. Certainly, it would be more comfortable than the Bell and Dragon. On the other hand, a pub would be more congenial than a boarding house. There would be beer and darts in the evenings and lots of people to talk to, and it would probably be a good bit cheaper too. I mean, he'd stayed a couple of nights before in a pub, and he had liked it. He'd never stayed in a boarding house, and to be perfectly honest, he was a tiny bit frightened of them. The name itself conjured up images of watery cabbage, rapacious landladies, and a powerful smell of kippers in the living room. After dithering about like this in the cold for two or three minutes, Billy decided that he would walk on, take a look at the bell and dragon before making up his mind. He turned to go. And now a queer thing happened to him. He was in the act of stepping back and turning away from the window when all at once his eye was caught and held in the most peculiar manner by the small notice that was there. Bed and breakfast, it said. Bed and breakfast, bed and breakfast, bed and breakfast. Each word was like a large black eye staring at him through the glass, holding him compelling him, forcing him to stay where he was and not to walk away from that house. And the next thing he knew, he was actually moving across from the window to the front door of the house, climbing the steps that led up to it and reaching for the bell. He pressed the bell. Far away in a back room, he heard it ringing. And then at once, it must have been at once because he hadn't even had time to take his finger off of the bell button, the door swung open and a woman was standing there. It normally... You ring the bell and you have at least half minutes wait before the door opens. But this dame was like a jack-in-the-box. <laughs> he pressed the bell and out she popped. It made him jump. She was about 45 or 50 years old. And the moment she saw him, she gave him a warm, welcoming smile. Please, come in she said pleasantly. 
She stepped aside, holding the door wide open, and Billy found himself automatically starting forward. The compulsion, or more accurately, the desire to follow her into that house was extraordinarily strong. I saw the notice in the window, he said, holding himself back. Yes, I know. I was wondering about a room. It's all ready for you, my dear, she said. She had a round pink face and very gentle blue eyes. I was on my way to the Bell and Dragon, Billy told her, but your notice in the window just happened to catch my eye. My dear boy, she said, why, why don't you come in and get out of the cold? How much do you charge? Five and sixpence a night, including breakfast? It was fantastically cheap. It was less than half of what he had been willing to pay. If that's too much, she added, then perhaps I can reduce it a tiny bit. Do you desire an egg for breakfast? Eggs are expensive at the moment. It would be sixpence less without the egg. Five and sixpence is fine, he answered. I should like very much to stay here. I knew you would. Do come in. She seemed terribly nice. She looked exactly like the mother of one's best school friend welcoming one into the house to stay over for the Christmas holidays. Billy took off his hat and stepped over the threshold. Just hang it there, she said, and let me help you with your coat. There were no other coats or hats in the hall. There were no umbrellas, no walking sticks, nothing. We have it all to ourselves, she said smiling at him over her shoulder as she led the way upstairs. You see, it isn't very often I have the pleasure of taking a visitor into my little nest. <laughs> the old girl is slightly dotty, Billy told himself, but at five and sixpence a night, who gave a damn about that? Oh, I should have thought you'd be simply swamped with applicants, he said politely. Oh, I am, my dear. I am, of course I am. But the trouble is that I'm inclined to be just a teeny-weeny bit choosy and particular, if you see what I mean. <laughs> ah, yes. <laughs> but I'm always ready. Everything is always ready day and night in this house, just on the off chance that an acceptable young man will come along. And it is... Such a pleasure, my dear, such a very great pleasure when now and again I open the door and I see someone standing there who is exactly right. She was halfway up the stairs and she paused with one hand on the stair rail, turning her head and smiling down at him with pale lips. Like you, she added. And her blue eyes traveled slowly all the way down the length of Billy's body to his feet and then up again. On the second floor landing, she said to him, this floor is mine. They climbed another flight. And this one is all yours. She said, here's your room. I do hope you'll like it. She took him into a small but charming front bedroom, switching on the light as she went in. The morning sun comes right in the window, Mr. Perkins. It, it is Mr. Perkins, isn't it? No, he said. Uh, it's Weaver. Mr. Weaver. How nice. 
I've put a water bottle between the sheets to air them out. Mr. Weaver, it's such a comfort to have a hot water bottle in a strange bed with clean sheets, don't you agree? And you, you may light the gas fire at any time if you feel chilly. Thank you, Billy said. Thank you ever so much. He noticed that the bedspread had been taken off the bed and that the bedclothes had been neatly turned back on one side, all ready for someone to get in. I'm so glad you appeared, she said, looking earnestly into his face. I was beginning to get worried. That, that's all right, Billy answered brightly. You mustn't worry about me. He put his suitcase on the chair and started to open it. And what about supper, my dear? Did you manage to get anything to eat before you came here? I'm not a bit hungry, thank you, he said. I think I'll just go to bed as soon as possible because tomorrow I've got to get up rather early and report to the office. Very well then. I'll leave you now so that you can unpack. But before you go to bed, would you be kind enough to pop into the sitting room on the ground floor and sign the book? Everyone has to do that because it's the law of the land and we don't want to go breaking any laws at this stage in the proceedings, do we? She gave him a little wave of the hand and went quickly out of the room and closed the door. Now, the fact that this landlady appeared to be slightly off her rocker didn't appear to worry Billy in the least. After all, she not only was harmless, there was no question about that, but she was also quite obviously a kind and generous soul. He guessed that she had probably lost a son in the war or something like that and had never gotten over it. So a few minutes later, after unpacking his suitcase and washing his hands, he trotted downstairs to the ground floor and entered the living room. His landlady wasn't there, but the fire was glowing in the hearth, and the little dashend was still sleeping soundly in front of it. The room was wonderfully warm and cozy. I'm a lucky fellow, he thought, rubbing his hands. This is a bit of all right. He found the guest book lying open on the piano, so he took out his pen and wrote down his name and address. There were only two other entries above his on the page, and as one always does with guest books, he started to read them. One was a Christopher Mulholland from Cardiff. The other was Gregory W. Temple from Bristol. It's funny, he suddenly thought. Christopher Mulholland rings a bell. Now, where on earth had he heard that rather unusual name before? Was it a boy at school? No. Was it one of his sister's numerous young men, perhaps? Or a friend of his father's? No, 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 it wasn't any of those. He glanced down again at the book. Christopher Mulholland, 231 Cathedral Road, Cardiff. Gregory W. Temple, 27 Sycamore Drive, Bristol. As a matter of fact, now he came to think of it, he wasn't at all sure that the second name didn't have almost as much of the familiar ring about the first. Gregory Temple he said aloud, searching his memory. Christopher Mulholland. Such charming boys, a voice behind him answered, and he turned and saw his landlady sailing into the room with a large silver tea tray in her hands. She was holding it well out in front of her and rather high up as though the tray were a pair of reins on a frisky horse. They sound somehow familiar, he said. They do? Oh, how interesting. I'm almost positive I've heard those names before somewhere. Isn't that odd? Maybe it was in the newspapers. They weren't famous in some way, were they? 
I mean, famous cricketers or footballers or, or something like that. Famous, she said, setting the tea tray down on the low table in front of the sofa. Oh, no, I don't think they were famous, but they were incredibly handsome, both of them, I can promise you that. They were tall and young and handsome, my dear, just exactly like you. Once more, Billy glanced down at the book. Look here, he said, noticing the dates. This last entry is over two years old. Is it? Yes, indeed. And Christopher Mulholland's is nearly a year before that, more than three years ago. Oh, dear me, she said, shaking her head and heaving a dainty little sigh. I would never have thought it. How time does fly away from us all, doesn't it, Mr. Wilkins? It's Weaver, Billy said. W-E-A-V-E-R. Oh, of course it is, she cried, sitting down on the sofa. How silly of me. I I do apologize in one ear and out of the other. That's me, Mr. Weaver. You know something, Billy said, something that's really quite extraordinary about all this. No, dear, I don't. Well, you see, both of these names, Mulholland and Temple, I not only seem to remember each one of them separately, so to speak, but somehow or another, in some peculiar way, they both appear to be sort of connected together as well, as though they were both famous for the same sort of thing, if, if, you, if you see what I mean, like, uh, like, well, like Dempsey and Tunney, for example, or, or Churchill and Roosevelt. Oh, well, how amusing, she said. Come over here now, dear, and sit down beside me on the sofa. I'll give you a nice cup of tea and a ginger biscuit before you go to bed. Oh, no, no, you really shouldn't bother, Billy said. I I didn't mean for you to do anything like that. He stood by the piano, watching her as she fussed about with the cups and saucers. He noticed that she had small, white, quickly moving hands and red fingernails. I'm almost positive it was in the newspapers. I saw them, Billy said. I'll think of it in a second. I'm sure I will. There's nothing more tantalizing than a thing like this that lingers just outside the borders of one's memory. He hated to give up. Now, wait a minute. He said, just wait a minute. Mulholland, Christopher Mulholland, was... Wasn't that the name of that Eton schoolboy who was on a walking tour through the West Country and then all of a sudden, milk, she said, and sugar? (laughs) Uh, Yes, please. Uh, and then all of a sudden, Eton schoolboy. Oh, no. She said, no, 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 my dear. That, that can't possibly be right because my Mr. Mulholland was certainly not an Eton schoolboy when he came to me. He was a Cambridge undergraduate. And I come over here now and sit next to me and warm yourself in front of this lovely fire. Come on. Your tea's all ready for you. She patted the empty place beside her on the sofa and she sat there smiling at Billy and waited for him to come over. He crossed the room slowly and sat down on the edge of the sofa. She placed his teacup on the table in front of him. There we are, she said. How nice and cozy this is, isn't it? Billy started sipping his tea. She did the same. For half a minute or so, neither one of them spoke, but Billy knew that she was looking at him. Her body was half turned toward him and he could feel her eyes resting on his face, watching him over the rim of her teacup. Now and again, he caught a whiff of a peculiar smell that seemed to emanate directly from her person. It was not in the least unpleasant, and it reminded him, 
well, he wasn't quite sure what it reminded him of. Pickled walnuts? Uh, new leather? Or, or is it the corridors of a hospital? At length, she said, Mr. Mulholland was a great one for his tea. Never in my life have I seen anyone drink as much tea as dear sweet Mr. Mulholland. I suppose he left fairly recently, Billy said. He was still puzzling in his head about the two names. He was positive now that he'd seen them in the newspaper, in, in the headlines. Left, she said, arching her brows. Oh, but my dear boy, he never left. He's still here. Mr. Temple is here also. They're on the fourth floor, both of them, together. Billy set his cup down slowly on the table and stared at his landlady. She smiled back at him, and then she put out one of her white hands and patted him comfortingly on the knee. How old are you, my dear? She asked. Seventeen. Seventeen, she cried. Oh, it's the perfect age. Mr. Mulholland was also seventeen, but I, th I think he—I think he was a trifle shorter than you are. In—in in fact, I'm sure he was, and his his teeth weren't quite as white. You have the most beautiful teeth, Mr. Weaver. Did you know that? They're not as good as they look. <laughs> Billy said they've got simply masses of fillings in, in them at the back. Mr. Temple, of course, was a little older, she said, ignoring his remark. He was actually 28, and yet I, I never would have guessed it if he hadn't told me, never in my whole life, there wasn't a blemish on his body. <laughs> a what? <laughs> Billy said. Oh, his skin was just like a baby's. There was a pause. Billy picked up his teacup and took another sip of his tea and then set it down again gently in its saucer. He waited for her to say something else, but she seemed to have lapsed into one of her silences again. He sat there staring straight ahead of him into the far corner of the room, biting his lower lip. That parrot, he said at last, you know something, it had me completely fooled when I first saw it through the window. I could have sworn it was alive. <sighs> Alas, no longer. Oh, it's most terribly clever the way it's been done, he said. It's, it, it doesn't look the least bit dead. Who did it? I did. You did? Of course, she said. And have you met my little Basil as well? <laughs> she nodded towards the dash and curled up so comfortably in front of the fire. Billy looked at it, and suddenly he realized that the animal had all the time been just as silent and motionless as the parrot. He put out a hand and touched it gently on the top of its back. The back was hard and cold, and when he pushed the hair to one side with his fingers, he could see the skin underneath, grayish black and dry and perfectly preserved. Good gracious me, he said. How absolutely fascinating. He turned away from the dog and stared with deep admiration at this little woman beside him on the sofa. It must be awfully difficult to do something like that. Not in the least, she said. I stuff all my little pets myself when they pass away. Will you have another cup of tea? 
no, thank you, Billy said. The tea tasted faintly of bitter almonds, and he didn't care much for it. You, you did sign the book, didn't you? Oh, yes. That's good. Because later on, if I happened to forget what you were called, then I could always come down here and look it up. I still do that almost every day with Mr. Mulholland and Mr. Mr. Temple, Billy said. Gregory Temple. Excuse my asking, but haven't there been any other guests here except them in the last two or three years? Holding her teacup high in one hand, inclining her head slightly to the left, she looked at him out of the corners of her eyes and gave him another gentle little smile. No, my dear, she said. Only you. Sam Underwood performed Raoul Dahl's The Landlady as part of the Virginia Arts Festival's Fringe Festival. Maybe you should really scrutinize that next Airbnb listing. I'm Robert Sean Leonard. Thanks for joining me for Selected Shorts. Selected Shorts is produced by Jennifer Brennan. Our radio producer is Sarah Montague. The readings are recorded by Miles B. Smith. Our programs presented at the Getty Center in Los Angeles are recorded by Phil Richards. Our hosts are recorded with the generous support of CUNY at the City University of New York radio station with sound engineering by Sarah Fishman. Our mix engineer is Joe Plord. Our theme music is David Peterson's That's the Deal, performed by the Deerdorf Peterson Group. Support for Selected Shorts is provided by Houghton Mifflin Harcourt, publishers of the Best American Short Stories, edited in 2016 by Juno Diaz. Additional support is provided by the Dungannon Foundation, sponsor of the Ray Award for the short story, the Henry Nias Foundation, the Howard Gilman Foundation, Seedlings Foundation, and the National Endowment for the Arts. Zabars.com is a proud sponsor of Selected Shorts. Zabars.com delivers New York original toasting bagels, coffee, smoked salmon, babka, and more throughout the 50 states, Puerto Rico, and the Virgin Islands. Visit them on the web at zabars.com shorts. Additional support for this program comes from this station and public radio international stations nationwide. Selected Shorts is produced by Symphony Space and is distributed nationwide by PRI, Public Radio International. Public Radio International.